Welcome to HSBC Talks Business, the podcast series that brings together business leaders and industry experts to explore the latest global insights, trends, and opportunities. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes. Thanks for listening, and now on to today's show. Hello, and I'm Wei Xin Chan from HSBC's Climate Change Center of Excellence, where I also head up ESG research. COP27. How exciting. And as ever, there's a lot going on. I'd like to welcome Nigel Topping, a UN high-level champion for climate action in COP26. Uh, This shows you how serious he is. He's even trying to learn Arabic at the moment. He asked me to emphasize the word trying, but uh, I'm sure that's uh, you being modest. And Jenny McInnes, Global Head of Policy and Partnerships Sustainability at HSBC. Thank you for joining me both for this panel. We are going to have a discussion covering developments behind the scenes, green zone issues, and the all-important oil that facilitates negotiations, climate finance. So at COP26 last year, uh, Nigel, the UK publicized the mantra of cash, coal, cars, and trees, and, and the first few days had a flurry of announcements to that effect. But what progress have we seen on these? Uh, I'd like to focus on the coal, and the cars, and the trees initiatives um, for the moment. We can leave finance till later, but in your Vantage point, Nigel, what progress have we seen? I think mixed. You know, one of the things which really landed in in Glasgow was this idea of the breakthrough agenda. Like, what are we going to do in each of these sectors? And actually it goes beyond coal cars, cash and trees, which is a, the Prime Minister's simplified list of four. I mean, there's many more, right? Steel, aviation, shipping, um, you know, regenerative agriculture. So we've now got um, well over 50 countries all committed to that agenda, which means driving the innovation by 2030 so that we're on track. So, of course, we've, had, we've hit some bumps in the road because of Ukraine, but actually all the evidence is that we're accelerating the energy transition, although there's some short-term use of coal and some gas assets, and Fatih Birol was very positive about that trajectory. If you look at cars, um, and I bang on about this all the time, that we need to improve our, our exponential maths, we've more than 50 x the amount of electric vehicles being sold in the last 10 years. So that's more than that's doubling faster than every two years. And we're now at 10% globally. So if you carry on doubling every two years, that's 80% within three more doublings. So basically, the combustion engine is dead globally by the end of this decade. And we're starting to see that exponential with real money coming in in the early stage, green hydrogen, green steel, sustainable aviation fuels, the first zero carbon ships actually being ordered by by, by Maersk and and, and the other major um, container shipping vessels. So Good progress, not enough progress in emerging markets, and that's perhaps more of a um, finance conversation, which we'll come to later. I think the last thing I'd say is we've seen some very big policy shifts in the last few months. Obviously, the Inflation Reduction Act in the States. I mean, there's a kind of a feeding frenzy going on right now in the States. Everyone's just falling over themselves to access the, the largely carrot-driven transition there, but also Australia, you know, that's a, that's a big deal in terms of a major um, renewables and green hydrogen play, but of course Europe also accelerating and now talking about possibly even upping their headline 2030 target. Well, at the end of COP26, the, the Glasgow Climate Pact was signed. Countries were asked to revisit and strengthen their climate pledges or those nationally determining uh, contributions. I, I count 23 with the latest being the UK and Indonesia. And as you said, the, the EU talking about it, but they're quite, uh, they weren't quite uh, the step up that we were looking for. Uh, is the situation different on the ground? Jenny, perhaps we can turn to you uh, for this question. How are countries closing the gap between 
climate targets uh, with realistic policy setting and implementation? Yeah, thanks, Beijing. I think it's a really important question. And when I, we were going into COP26, I was working for the UK government and I really thought about ambition and ambition raising in a number of different ways. Obviously, NDC enhancement in terms of increasing the actual target within the NDC is a really important metric. Um, and it's important that we're able to show that the ratchet process that the Paris Agreement baked in um, it works, it's viable, because every country that submitted an NDC in Paris should be able to go further because uh, we've built so much confidence over the last few years by the fact that every country is part of this uh, agreement. But I think there are other measures of ambition and we need to take them all into account. So for example, improving the quality of NDCs, a lot of countries that put forward NDCs initially were, you know, they were a two page piece of paper. Um, they hadn't gone through national parliament. Um, they hadn't been ratified domestically. They didn't have the ministry institutional capability to actually drive through the NDC. And that trans translation of the sort of headline target into real implementation plans is a really core part of ambition. And I think we've seen a lot of progress on that. Um, you know, a number of countries have embedded uh, their NDCs and net zero commitments into legislation, into new climate change acts. And that's really important because it helps to buffer against political change as well. Like in the UK, we have uh, net zero legislation. We were the first country in the world to develop the Climate Change Act and then uh, the net zero legislation. And that presents you know, a huge range of benefits in terms of establishing the institutional framework for being held to account on, on progress and really forcing uh, the difficult policy decisions that are required to, to meet that commitment. Um, and I think another sort of another way of countries um, showing ambition is by thinking long, thinking longer term. You know, we need short term NDCs. We have to take a huge chunk out of uh, the global carbon emissions before 2030. But we also need countries to be thinking longer term. And for some countries in particular, that's important because we anticipate some growth in emissions, for example, in emerging economies between now and 2030. And we need to see a rapid scale back on the back of that. I think a number of other things that have happened, you know, we've seen a few countries lead the development of their own energy transition plans. And that's important because this has to be a country-led process. Um, it can't be imposed on countries from either the UNFCCC or from, uh, you know, from, from donors um, and finances. So it's, it's really helpful when a country defines their long-term energy transition plan because it gives confidence to investors on the direction of travel. There's been a number of other things over the last couple of years, like investments in uh, cities, in cleaner, greener cities with immediate health benefits. And that's particularly relevant in, you know, as we sort of transition, hopefully, out of the pandemic and, and recognise the, the interoperability between health and, and um, local climate. Um, and we're also seeing a massive increase in the market for green finance. Lots and lots of countries, including emerging economies, have been developing taxonomies and green bond standards that help to um, that align with global benchmarks and, again, help to give confidence to investors um, on uh, the potential for investing in those countries. Thank you, Jenny. 
Nigel, in your role as a sort of UN high-level champion, what, what are you seeing that is outside of this policy setting that uh, Jenny told us about, outside of politics and outside of the complications of getting legislation passed? What about the real climate action from companies? Well, you know, I talked about the breakthrough agenda, which was launched by the UK presidency, but, but we we actually launched the 2030 breakthroughs to sort of non-state actors for the private sector year, the, the, the year ahead of the COP. And the private sector is getting itself pretty well organised Pretty much every major emitting sector, you've got a serious collaboration or collaborations along the value chain. You know, the massive collaboration around getting to zero shipping, you know, fuel providers, port operators, you know, shipping um, manufacturers, freight owners as a zero emissions freight alliance with like Unilever and IKEA and, 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 and Amazon saying they'll, they'll only buy zero emissions freight by 2040. There's a whole series of first movers coalitions, which is a mixture of countries and companies commit, you know, giving forward market commitments to buying green steel, green cement, green hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuel. So I think that pre-competitive, you know, we're very used to this in the tech sector, right? We're so used to, you know, Moore's law, right? It's not a law, as you know, it's an assertion of belief in our ability to innovate, which when enough people step up and say, yeah, we can do that, then it's amazing what we can do. And you're right, we're starting to see a Moore's law in pretty much, you know, so in, in, in hydrogen, we're looking at getting to a dollar fifty, then a dollar a kilogram before 2030. There's like mass, you know, we, we when we launched the green hydrogen catapult a year before COP, the, the, the members were targeting 25 um, gigawatts by 2026. But a year later, they increased their target by 80% to 45 gigawatts, 2026, and 700 by 2030. That's that exponential Kicking in, so I think that's a really and that that interplay between you know more and more countries stepping up, as Jenny said, it's not just with NDCs and long-term strategies, but sometimes policy. Like the, I don't think the Indian tender for fifty thousand um, e-buses, which is a ten billion dollar tender, is captured in NDCs or long-term strategies. Yeah, I don't think the, the sort of reliance or Adani tens of billions into renewables and green hydrogen is necessarily captured in the dynamism. So I think one of the things we won't see every country submit a new NDC every year. That's actually quite a lot of work for a lot of countries. But you know we've got very, we've got very significant step up in the states. Uh, you know the EU probably won't. You know are talking about increasing their headline figure. Maybe maybe after even countries like Egypt who just you know haven't got a very ambitious NDC, but are are working on turning the plans into financeable propositions. We had a big 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 conference out there, which is really encouraging. And HSBC been very involved out there but their their head their, their minister for renewable energy is already saying next year they're going to review their targets because i think that people get it's, it's a question of confidence right that exponential is 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 built on confidence of people saying what they're doing it and then doing it quicker and cheaper and then and then people go in with a bigger target and a, and, a, and a shorter time frame the next time so i think in particular we're seeing that alignment of the private sector along the value chain and around it with the finance sector with all the members of gfans um, doing the hard work of turning headline commitments into into detailed plans, you know, as HSBC, for example, has been has has, has been doing. You know, you can't you can't implement at the level of net zero by 2050. You've got to implement that. How do we finance this sector through the transition? 
doing it on the ground, so to speak, yeah. exactly. And, and as countries you know, improve, uh, so the UAE a couple of weeks ago, um, the peer pressure will be there and that momentum will follow through. Uh, but a slightly different question for you, Nigel, if I, if I may. I mean, many of the initiatives you spoke about tend to focus on mitigation, net zero, one and a half degrees, very important for the sort of future transition and building the infrastructure surrounding that. But the extreme weather events of 2022 so far, right? I mean, the heat wave in Europe, the droughts in China, the floods in, in Pakistan, uh, these, these continue to highlight the importance of adaptation. Indeed, Egypt uh, in its representation as COP27 hosts uh, representing the African continent, um, we'll, we'll be focusing on adaptation. So what, what adaptation actions are you, are you seeing from, from companies, Nigel? That's a really good point, and it is something that the Egyptian presidency is particularly focused on. Um, and a, a, as have we been for some time, I mean, the, the, the mitigation work is better organized and further advanced intellectually and operationally. Actually, we just launched in, uh, you know, we launched this idea of the, the mitigation breakthroughs, like the 2030, like we need 70 green steel plants to be built by 2030. That's the figure that comes from the Mission Possible work on steel and we can see 47 of them in various stages of planning already so i'm yeah, you can start to be pretty confident that we'll hit that 70 or maybe surpass it um but on, on adaptation and resilience there hasn't been that clarity of landscape so we end up talking in abstract terms about the problem but not getting down on the ground as you say so we've just launched a series of adaptation resilience breakthroughs which define the deployment target for various solutions whether it's um insurance you know closing the protection gap because that's one of the big things which allows for example smallholder farmers to be more resilient or whether it's investment in water infrastructure in urban areas in sub-saharan africa or clean cooking solutions or mangrove restoration um, and each of those has uh, you know millions of lives and livelihoods made more resilient and most of them also have a mitigation aspect as well like if you're restoring mangroves or using clean cooking stoves instead of cutting down forests you have all sorts of Benefits, but also importantly, have they have developmental um, employment and uh, and economic growth aspects. And one of the most important things that we're working on now is trying to kill the myth that there's no investment case in adaptation and resilience. It's it's just not true. It's it's kind of so obviously not true when you just think about what everybody agrees is that when we get to a resilient net zero world, it'll be a much bigger economy. So there must be a way of unlocking a business case. It requires some innovation financially and in data. I mean, some of the things that HSBC is involved in, like fast infra uh, labeling for robust um, resilient infrastructure investment or the, the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment, which is making really good progress on helping governments understand the longer term fiscal case for investing more in resilient infrastructure and generating a bigger fiscal return. But, but that's quite technical, right? And, and, and so it's really pleasing to see some of the leading banks like yourselves and the, and, the, and the rating agencies and data providers coming together. And I think we'll see a lot more of that in Egypt and in this decade to come, that actually there is a case to invest in, in, in resilience. It just needs to be made skillfully. Um, and there's a, and, 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 that, and that's, that's, that's not a flippant statement. There's a lack of skills in a lot of those markets to help make that case. How do we know what a good climate plan looks like for a company? Well, I mean, it's, I'm sure Nigel has views, but it's a, it's a really good question. And I think credibility in that is absolutely key. Um, so GFANS is helpfully producing uh, a set of guidance for um, financial institutions in considering, you know, uh, the, how to develop transition plans and what should be in them. Um, you know, we will need to build up our assessment really, really rapidly. And um have a really clear view of, of what credibility looks like. And we're thinking about that 
a lot at the moment in the context of our energy company transition plans, um, which we've already requested and which will be absolutely key as we look to implement our energy policy, our new net zero aligned energy policy that will be published at the end of this year. Um, because, you know, we need to be able to differentiate between the countries that are the, the clients that are actively seeking to transition and have a credible roadmap to get there, but perhaps need some help. And those that have, um, you know, set targets but have no, uh, no plans to get there um, and understand how we work with them to really try and drive that um, transition. I don't know whether, Nigel, you want to add to that. I mean, we, that's one of the reasons we launched the Race to Zero a couple of years ago was to try and distinguish between flaky um, greenwashing announcements and targets and science-based plans. There's like over 8,000 companies and financial institutions now in the Race to Zero. So they've all committed to setting robust science-based targets, which means immediate, you know, 2025, 2030 goals, not just you know five CEOs down the road, a miracle is going to happen. But on my watch as a CEO, I promise to um, you know, operationalize this target i think that increasingly we're seeing good work on sectoral pathways you know the mission possible partnership and sbti um, have done a lot of work on some of those hard to abate sectors or or innovate to abate we prefer to call them now like steel shipping i think they've just published something on chemicals you know so so judging whether a company has aligned their plans at least with those sort of uh, uh, you know pre-competitive plan much like much like in the sort of tech world, there's, there's a, a pre-competitively agreed technology roadmap to go from 4G to 5G. We're starting to see that happen in more and more of these sectors. So pre-competitively agreed the roadmap, then compete like hell in implementing it. One really important thing to note is, is, is to benchmark against those plans which get to net zero rather than the key providers of forecast information. Like for, forecasts are always wrong on the on the on the low side for technology so you need to you need to be looking at normative scenarios not forecasters whether it's bnf or the iea their technology forecasts are always wrong they, try, they don't take into consideration the dynamics that we know of this this the feedback process they try and model bottom up and that's why they always have to correct upwards every year but i think the most important thing is is demonstration of allocation of capital right so an oil company is talking about being serious about the transition but only allocating a couple of percentage points of their capex to the energy transition, they're just not not so say it's, it's just blah blah net zero, but look where the look follow the money. So you can see that now in the automotive industry, all the money's going into R and D and product development for electric vehicles, right? So you can see that's a serious transition. You can you, you can judge how serious, but in other companies, you can see that it's not serious because the money's not flowing yet. What developments are we seeing to align the financial system to sort of net zero goals, to transition and to adaptation? From your vantage point, Nigel. Well, you just laid out the negotiation agenda, right? And that of course relevant, but it's far from sufficient. I mean, Mahmoud would say that climate financing is insufficient, inefficient, and unfair. And we know it's insufficient. A part of the problem is that we've over-focused on the negotiations agenda. Like to be blunt, the difference between 80 billion and 120 billion, it will be will be almost unnoticeable for most emerging markets. So it's that's that's not to um try and um, mathematically wave away the trust issue around the delivery of that 100 billion, but it's really a trust issue. And, 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 and there's a trust deficit because there's a, that promise hasn't been met. And it's really, up, it, yeah, it really undermines trust in the whole process, right? So we're waiting to see the, the updated plan of how that 100 billion is going to be reached. But we know that the real figure is more like 3 trillion um, for emerging markets, excluding China. It's based on like the Vivid and the Brookings Institute seem to converge around around that 
level. So, so one thing which Mahmoud and I and the presidencies have asked Nick Stern and Vera Songwe, Vera Songwe was the, um, ran the UN Economic Commission in Africa until recently, and, 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 a, and a group of global economists, is to give us a better picture of the overall landscape in terms of the overall quantum, so that three trillion, but then break it down by multilateral, bilateral, sovereign, uh, d- domestic savings, mobilization. That's an interesting thing that's being talked about a lot more now in meetings in, in, in Africa and the islands that there's that this kind of lazy capital sitting around not being used or, or it's being put into T-bills and in, 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 you know, treasury bills rather than investment in, in local infrastructure. Um, so what's the total amount? What's it? What, what's, what's the stat? How does the stack break down? And then also what are some of the debt issues around it? Like we need to see more, you know, catastrophe clauses to, to, to have automatic um, repayment holidays when, when particularly when the small vulnerable countries who have like a 50 to 200% of GDP event, right? It's kind of insane to expect them to keep paying debt whilst trying to concentrate on um, rebuilding after a hurricane. Say, or, you know, significant extensions in insurance coverage. There's some good progress being made in parametric insurance rollout in the Caribbean. Um, look, re-looking at the laws for qualification of ODA for some of those countries that have graduated to middle income, but are still very vulnerable compared to the size of their economy. Barbados would be the poster child for that. So, and then particularly looking at the leverage ratios that we need. So for me, the most thing I'd like to see most is I'd like to I'd like to ban MDBs from talking about their front of pipe deployment measure and only allow them to talk about what they're actually leveraging. So that that's why I use that, that 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 example of Egypt of 500 million public to 10 billion private. That's a that's a pretty good leverage ratio, right? It's in, in emerging markets the current leverage ratio from public to private is one to 0.19. So we're getting 19 cents for every dollar of public money. 19 cents private. That's it's rubbish, right? And it needs to be one to three because we need to go to about 75 percent private and to, to reach that, that three trillion. So I think we're getting a better sense of the landscape. We're starting to have better conversations around sort of normatively what the changes are that are needed. You'll have seen um, Mia Motley um, and, and, and others talking in the General Assembly about some of those changes that are needed. But we, we need more public capital, and whether that's from more special drawing rights or um, you know some of the work reviewing the capital adequacy of the, of, of the MDBs. And we need to leverage it much better. And we need to tackle um, the debt in a more structural way. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty big agenda. But I do think the quality of the conversation is improving, and hopefully we can go beyond just what's the successor to the hundred billions, having a a, a, a a more sophisticated overall conversation, which this includes much more of the private sector capabilities as well. There are lots of linkages between a lot of different areas. Uh, one of the ones that is emerging, uh, Jenny, is between climate change and biodiversity. It's basically being recognised. Um, what role does biodiversity nature-based solutions have in helping us to get to net zero faster? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was thinking exactly that when we were talking about demand side, uh, because we're also developing our deforestation policy this year alongside our, our energy policy. And the challenges are completely different because for the deforestation policy, we really need the whole value chain or you know other critical actors in the value ch- chain and other competitors or other banks to move in the, the same direction to really send the, the signal that's needed to, to tackle deforestation. I mean, it's not new, the, the concept <laughs> climate and nature are intrinsically linked. The, you know, the evidence is absolutely uh, there now, and it has been for the, the last couple of decades. So we will not achieve net zero without serious efforts um, to protect uh, nature, to restore nature, and the ecosystem services to value the ecosystem services that nature provides. Um, 
So that's why we're really focused on our, our net zero line deforestation policy this year. Um, we need to uh, rapidly understand how we can have that value chain impact. And it is a multiplier impact. That's the exciting thing about it, is if we can send the right signals to the value chain by sending a demand signal in terms of the uh, commodity-linked deforestation um, that's, that's potentially financed by HSBC and other banks, um, then that has a, an impact on the whole value chain. Um, what we need to ensure is that it doesn't um, result in a shift in trade flows away from emerging economies, um, who are the biggest producers of commodities and um, the you know who who are the ones that need support to tackle deforestation. So it does need some. Uh, it can't just send a demand signal. It needs to do. There needs to be work with government to shore up that producer country um, regulatory environment and enforcement. What do you think COP27 will be known for and how will it support or pave the way for COP28? 30 seconds each. Why don't we start with Nigel? Um, I think it'll be known for a focus on resilience and on some of the innovations needed, both public and private, but international and domestic, to mobilize the trillions needed to make the just transition in emerging markets. Thank you. And Jenny? And I think it's a really, when you the question was about COP27 looking through to COP28 as well. It's yes. really important that we take that two-year view. And um, it's got to build confidence in the process and in the commitments that were have been made by the public and private sector um, and the fact that those are being implemented and uh, delivering impacts on the ground. Wonderful. That's all we have time for. Uh, what, what amazing insights from the ground, uh, from the world of finance, from, from Nigel and Jenny. Thank you so much for your, your time. Thank you for joining us at HSBC Talks Business. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please do subscribe to the HSBC Talks Business channel to stay up to date with new episodes.